Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. This is Ken Dobson. Thanks for joining me today. And it's been a little while, which I th- is, is interesting to me because about the time I sort of said to myself, hey, I'm going to kind of crank out a few more podcasts per, per month type of thing, I felt like a growing inner quiet. Like I wasn't quite sure what to say. And it's funny how the the psyche and the soul and the heart work like that sometimes. Like our announcements, our plans, our will, um, our promises, you know, sometimes like it's almost as if the soul or even the divine, the divine wind has other plans. And um, it's like that Thomas Merton prayer, Lord God, I've, I have no idea where I'm going. And I don't know if I'm doing your will, he says. But I believe that the desire to do your will does in fact please you. That's his sort of um, way of relating to that dilemma. Yeah, and I've sort of felt like that. I, I, it's personal. It's a personal season I'm in. I'm not exactly sure where I'm going. It's a, a cultural, um, I think there are cultural influences here. I, I often feel like in the, in the culture of noise, why do we need more of it, you know? And sometimes I just, sometimes that, that resistance is, comes from an immature place, like um, I don't want to get involved, you know, type of thing, or even self-righteous. I'm too good to lower myself and have ordinary conversations about politics and what everyone else seems to be caring about, I'm going to be the opposite. And, you know, that's kind of that rebellious, slightly immature, um, I guess, energy or posture pattern, maybe is a better word for it. Um, yeah, so what's my point? My point is I just, I felt that kind of quiet. And I get, I have learned over the years that it's important to, to pay attention to that. Like, oh, that's interesting. Um, I don't feel like saying a lot right now, and I probably ought not to say a lot right now. And sometimes I know I'm a choice because I agree to speak publicly in various platforms, you know, at C3 on Sundays and various other places. And, and so it can be more challenging and, and worse than that, I've agreed to talk about spiritual things. (laughs) It's like, um, you know, when the spirit is saying, be quiet, and the paycheck is saying, talk, you know, this, this creates a, some dissonance. And so I've kind of been in that place, and I, I have felt more quiet. And only recently have I had a, kind of a little nudge, like, well, here's something. And so that's where, that's where I am right now. And um, maybe you know what I'm talking about. And more and more, I, it's like I need to remind myself that my so-called spiritual life is my actual life. Like, what is actually happening? What's happening? What, what's happening on the, on the subtle level? I often want to blow things out to the meta level, the symbolic and archetypal patterns. And, and I'll even take the subtlest nudges and, and, want to run them through some sort of grid. I think that's the desperation of the ego most of the time. 
Like, oh my God, where am I? And what does all this mean? And, you know, isn't there a great metaphor, story, or myth about this? And uh, when in truth, I'm just experiencing a subtle nudge that's like, mm, it's time to be quiet. It's, it's time to kneel, really. And I've always been haunted by one of T.S. Eliot's lines. He says that we need to uh, kneel where prayer has been valid. Kneel where prayer has been valid. And one part of me knows deeply he's right. And another loud part of me says, don't kneel, you know. Don't consent, don't bow. Um, especially not where prayer has been valid, you know. I... I'm a critic of religion. And, and in my most cynical moments, I'm a, I'm a critic of prayer. Of, and what could be more simple than expressing your longings to the mystery, you know, and um, more beautiful in a way. And, you know, that, that, kind of, that kind of callousness that comes from, I don't know where it comes from, probably comes from the, from the human nature on on, on the one hand, and also from maybe being overly saturated by my, by a religious environment, it has consequences. You know, you get you you grow calloused, and um, yeah, it's I'm just expressing my resistance to a prayer life and to saying something simple like I don't know what I'm doing. You know, one of my favorite prayers is Thomas Merton saying. My Lord God, I, ha I have no idea where I'm going. Like that, yes. Yes to that. Um, but even the first part, you know, I can, I can feel some resistance. My Lord God, I, I don't want to name the divine. You know, I just want to resist. I don't want to kneel, you know. Um, but more and more, and more I'm, I'm feeling like prayer as I'm dancing with it now and as I'm trying to describe it and as I think the great traditions have have taught us is not an option it's not like a like a decorative um, religious adornment that some people have and some people don't and uh, like <laughs> you know, kind of like a personality test, you know, well, some people are kind of into that, you know, and other people aren't. I, I, I'm wondering and feeling that the fundamental posture of kneeling, of prayer, of submission, of surrender, of, of, of emptying, of loosening your grip, like maybe in, in a, loosening our attachment and, 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 it really expressing longings and that kind of prayer is absolutely essential. It's like it's a non-negotiable of a of a of the spiritual life. And um, yeah, so I guess I've I've been feeling into that in my in my own way and wondering about it again and and I was drawn back to the, the parables of Jesus recently. I started reading them again, just a few of them. And this is one of the great gifts, I think, of being indoctrinated with the Bible. Um, especially 
I'll never look down my nose, really. I Well, I shouldn't. Occasionally I do look down, down my nose, but um, maybe I'll just put in the positive. I'm actually grateful for the really intense biblical education I had as a, as a Baptist. When I got to the Hebrew University in Jerusalem and was with, with other, other graduate students in comparative religion and doing really deep dives into biblical texts and interpretation and I realized, oh, I really know these stories, but not because I'm gifted, but because I was it's the water I was really swimming in as a kid, uh, unconsciously, like sort of the goldfish. I was unaware of the water, and so the stories went in pretty deep. And as much as I, you know, one side of me, the, you know, I don't want anything to do with religion, I'm out of here. I, I'm, I, I can walk away from all this. It turns out it's a lot more complicated than that, and you can't walk away from from the the terrain of your deep self, of your deep psyche, and um, and I think these stories more than that also rest in the in the collective Western psyche period, the images and um, <laughs> secret chambers and hidden caves and eddies in the river, that is the the biblical stories and. <clears throat> the archetypal patterns in them. They're part of the collective field and, and they're part of my personal field. And anyway, um, and, the, and a parable is, is an interesting way of telling the truth. They're, they're not real stories, we would say. They're like little mini myths, but they are real. They're like profoundly true in their fictive n- nature. Um, in fact, the the fact that it's a kind of fiction makes it more true, more resonant with, with the archetypal patterns that, that exist. In other words, you can't play history games with them. You can't say, well, we're going to explain this story away because um, we know the person that it's about. And actually, you got to know this, this, and this to really understand the story. They're, they, they're much more like a little mini myth and the word parable really means to cast alongside. That's what para means, to put alongside, to cast alongside. So really, this is what a parable is. It's like you're, it's like it's like fishing, really, and you're out in the water, and um, the fisherman casts a line or a lure alongside of you and reels it in, and and at sort of as it's passing by you. Um, it has an effect on you and you might bite on it and it might get into you and, or you might swim away and be scared of it. Or now I'm like, you know, you have to go too crazy with this, this analogy, but uh, um, it's definitely something that's cast alongside your life. So the way, way to listen to a parable is that pretend it's being told to you and pretend it's also about you and it's sort of passing by your life and coming alongside of you for a moment. And, uh, and as I was thinking about kneeling in the T.S. Eliot way, I remembered this parable of Jesus that is about prayer and about the place of prayer, the ultimate place of prayer in Judaism, which was the temple. And um, of course, Judaism in, in, the, in the first century was, was pretty complex. They also had prayer in the synagogues and there was a kind of prayer in the temple and you could do a private prayers and... Um, so uh, I guess there's some sophistication there. But the temple sort of 
at least visually and in the in the collective field of the Jewish people was the center place of prayer, like um, the heartbeat of it, it symbolized kind of the heartbeat of the of the religious posture toward God and and even you could say the even conversation, the secret hidden conversation between the divine and and the human and between ordinary men and women and the mysteries and you know, of course you got the priests kind of mediating this and um, one of the powerful things about Judaism among, among many is that uh, so much of the 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 biblical imagery, the Old Testament imagery from the Torah, you know, is makes it makes like a thread that that just m- makes that goes in and out of the fabric. The thread goes in and out of the fabric of of the rest of the Jewish experience from the time these stories first happened to the time period of the temple and then the destruction of the temple and and you know into the diaspora and even into contemporary Judaism. And one example of that is that. I'm thinking of uh, of Moses. Well, you could even really start with Abraham. Abraham cuts these animals in two and and um, then falls into a deep sleep and has this kind of mystical experience. And and God is there, appears in in the form of of a pot, like a like a piece of pottery that's smoking. And there's like a cloud present, and it's and he's kind of half awake and half asleep and. And the presence of God is, is somewhat mysterious in, in this moment. And, and if you fast forward a little bit, you have Moses ascending the mountain and you have uh, a cloud descending on the mountain and, and Moses is not allowed to see God and he has to be, he's sort of enveloped in the, in the cloud, which is a way of saying no one has direct access to God in a way, or direct access to the divine mysteries would would kill us would we wouldn't be able to handle it and so this kind of that's such an interesting image like i'm going to ascend the mountain to visit god and there be enveloped in a kind of unknowing you know this is where way later in christianity the cloud of unknowing the author of the of the cloud of unknowing i mean he's He's deeply steeped in this tradition by saying this is the very same thing, that we have to come to the place where we, where we unknow everything we know about God or everything we think we know about God. And it's like being enveloped in a cloud. And it comes straight from the Moses story. And in any case, the temple um, helped keep this tradition alive by burning incense in the temple so the, the priests inside would create a cloud, a kind of artificial cloud, and, and as a way of relating conversationally with the mysteries and saying no one can go straight in. And, um, and by the time you get to the, in, to the time period of Jesus, things like the Ark of the Covenant, which was like this fancy piece of furniture in the center of the temple, was gone, probably stolen by the Babylonians. And so even behind the curtain, there was nothing. I mean, that's just like such so powerful, so provocative, like... In the, in the center of the center of, of Judaism is the temple, and inside the center of the center of the temple is nothing, and, and that's enveloped in a cloud. <laughs> it's a way of saying, don't be too, get, too, don't be too arrogant um, about what you think you know about the divine. And so Jesus takes the image of two people going up to the temple, up to, this, the, up to the sacred site, where the presence of God dwells in, in some sort of mysterious and cloud-like way 
in the in the center. And um, he says, uh, "Here's the parable to some who were confident in their own righteousness. He looked and looked down on everyone else." Jesus told the following parable. Now Luke likes to do some commentary. He looks a Greek. He's not Jewish, and um, I think he's working hard to bridge the gap between what we would think of as the Jewish context, which Jesus is largely in, and, and the Greek world into which these stories were taking root. So Luke is one of those um, uh, bridge figures between worlds. And so he's interpreting a bit already before we even get to the parable. Um, but interesting phrasing here, to some who are confident in their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told the following parable. Now, what I, what I suggested already is, is a way of listening. So assume you are the person here, that you're confident in your own righteousness and you look down on everyone else. <laughs> this is like, that's the starting place. The starting place isn't, oh, this is about other people who do this. And I think one of the poignant um, elements of this parable, just when I, I put it in a modern context, is when I think about the purity games that are happening politically now. Who's using the right words in the right way, in the right context? Who has the right skin color to be able to say or do this or that? Um, who has the right political views? Who's on, here's is a phrase I always think is interesting, who's on, quote, the right side of history? You know, usually people who are just living in the present don't know what side of history they're on. That's the point of looking back you in due time. And so that's when someone is saying, I'm, I'm on the right side of history, or I'm making sure I'm on the right side of the history, you can be pretty sure they're in a position where they're confident of their own righteousness and looking down on everyone else. And so these purity games and, and uh, politics, as you know, has really replaced religious zeal, um, replaced religion in America at the moment. And it's, it's almost like, so this is a belief I have, I've mentioned on this podcast before, but um, Carl Jung argues that we have a religious instinct. And he means that it's, when he says instinct, he means like sex, food, shelter, you know, fight, flight, freeze, religion. <laughs> religious instinct. And, and, and maybe I don't want to go into tremendous detail about what he might mean by that. I might not know, really. Um, part of me just on a surface level says, yeah, he's probably right about that. I would think about it as, um, I tend to think about it as the instinct toward the transcendent, toward ultimate reality, to wrestling with questions of ultimate reality, to wanting to align oneself with something larger, something bigger, the transcendent, the divine, the God, the God image. Um, and, and maybe even to kneel. Like, what, where does that come from? Well, maybe it's something like an instinct. It's, it's uh, an instinctual response to wonder, you could say. I think um, maybe to argue with, who is it, Ernest Becker, that religion is rooted in the denial of death, okay, maybe in part. Um, m might it also be rooted in wonder? That's Abraham Heschel. He says the beginning of all religion is the experience of wonder and and what is it that gives us the capacity to experience that? Well, it's the religious instinct, I would say. And what happens is that because I think naturally everyone has 
the desire, the deep longing to attach them to themselves to the transcendent, to, to a truth that's larger than them, we could say. Well, when political ideologies or opinions or fundamentalists, fundamentalisms of various varieties, religious or otherwise, um, start saying, well, we know what we're talking about. We're the group that is the in-group, and that group is the out-group. It, it scratches that itch in, a, in an understandable but immature way. And this is why, you know, political positions right now, people seem to be even, you know, I don't know, I was going to say average people. I don't even know what I mean by that. People like me, I mean, just, just average people, can be so taken by a movement and... Um, so much so that you're not even sure who's talking when you hear someone talking. You know, that's there, it's almost like a kind of possession that can take place. Well, the religious instinct is being activated, but in in a way, or I should say, the religious instinct is being felt, but it's being channeled through a very narrow um, lens. And you know, that's a pretty dangerous place to be. The church, the synagogue, the mosque. The, the Buddhist temple, in some ways, historically, at its best, has stood outside of the political landscape to at, to at the very least say what is ultimately true is not country or tribe or party, but alignment to something larger. And um, as that wanes, that religious voice that, that you know, to use a Buddhist phrase, the thing that points to the moon, you know, as, as that wanes in the culture, well, you know, it just goes elsewhere. It goes elsewhere and you can see, you know, I'm, in a way I'm trying to explain the, the zeal right now for politics. And, um, and so just check in with yourself on this opening line. That's all I'm doing here. To some who are confident in their own righteousness. And if I really think about this, like I, I can already feel a, f a little twinge of guilt, <laughs> good old fashioned guilt. Yeah, more often than not, that's me. I actually think my ideas and my, I my ideological positions are better than others, you know, and that, that's, um, that's a, a worthy question. I don't think all ideologies are the same. They're not. I, I happen to, to believe that some are better than others. That puts me outside of the, the you know the, the extremist camp of of everything is relevant. Um, actually, I think some worldviews and ideas are are impoverished and not as well developed, and um, and I think that is a worthy conversation. But even if that's the case, some ideas are better than others. Um, what Jesus is pointing out is confident in their own righteousness. Like, and because I believe this, I am better than other people. See, that's the step. That's the, the move we all tend to make. And that's actually what makes an ideology so tasty. It's not this cold intellectual in, you know, I've examined all the positions and, um, I've come to the conclusion, and, and therefore, you know, this kind of cold rationalism that, that's not really most of us. Actually, we like this, you know, you know, I was joking with someone the other day. I said, if I could afford a Tesla and bought one, I would feel morally superior to people. Every time I plugged it in, I'd be like, I'm morally superior. Now, I don't even want to look into that because, you know, I'm, pl pl I'm plugging it into an outlet that's being, 
you know, that uses coal to generate power for my so-called green vehicle. And I don't want to look too carefully at where the minerals come from that, 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 and <clears throat> that are inside the battery and all that, you know, all the complex parts of a consumer society that we live in. And it's, but more the point is that I feel righteous. I feel righteous. Yeah. Oh, so I feel good. And I look down on people. So the, the parable is about that. And so it's about almost everyone right now. <laughs> All of us are like this. So then he then here's the parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. Jesus does this all the time. Gives us this kind of dualistic, um, here are two options, A and B. Uh, it's a trap, you know. It's like, oh, I, I see here. Um, here are two extremes, and one's going to be better than the other. And and oftentimes Jesus is sort of flipping things around. And the un- unusual path is is there's a kind of surprise twist. So you you want to be on the lookout for that sort of thing. So two two men went up to the temple to pray, and one was a Pharisee and the other t- a tax collector. And here it's like you can almost see people rolling their eyes. Well, of course, all right. So what do we have going on here? We've got um, the religious person, and, and in Jesus' day, the word Pharisee was not a bad word. People wouldn't have thought, oh, yeah, the Pharisee, you know, today— they get a bad rap in the Gospels. Jesus criticizes them. He also praises them. He also says, you should listen to them. Just don't do what they do. That's a direct quote from him. And one of Jesus' own followers, Nicodemus, is a Pharisee. So, And even Pharisees come and help Jesus. They uh, warn him to get away from Herod. So it's not as simple as Pharisee equals bad. Um, it's much more like Jesus is much closer to the Pharisees than any other group. So he criticizes them. And, you know, it's like, what business do I have? criticizing an, uh, an Armenian Orthodox Christian. I don't really know anything about it, but, you know, the Baptist, the evangelical, all right, this is my world. I can probably say some more critical things. That's like Jesus and the Pharisees. So, um, But hear me at least say the audience would have been like, okay, we've got the religious person and who we respect and, and the tax collector. And, and probably most of the audience would have been like, oh, yeah, well... Um, we don't really like the tax collector. I mean, who does want enjoy paying taxes in the first place? But they were sort of notoriously corrupt, and they're sort of caught between worlds. They're trying to please Rome, and also they're they're Jewish, and they're they have to live in the in the village. So who wants to live in a village where you're collecting taxes for the enemy? So kind of not the best spot to be in. And and maybe people would have been a little surprised that that a tax collector is at the temple. But I don't know about that. That seems kind of too easy of a, of a way of reading it. Um, so let's try to remove our, you know, 2,000 years of bias that Pharisees are bad and tax collectors are good, you know. Um, one of Jesus' followers, Matthew, is a tax collector. In any case, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. That's interesting. I never really thought about that. Stood by himself. I don't know what that means exactly. I can feel my own curiosity sort of rising up a little bit. Just if you read slow enough, you know, get little promptings. You know, maybe it's um, in Judaism you have something called the minyan, and that means the quorum. You need ten people in a minyan to have an official prayer service, and Jesus kind of makes it smaller by saying where two or three are gathered. So. In Judaism, prayer is often thought of as communal, and so maybe there's something here, maybe there's a little a little nod to 
where self-righteousness can take you, um, if that's indeed what the Pharisee is carrying, um, lead you to kind of isolation. Um, I am better than you, and I'm so much better than you that I have to stand up by myself. So perhaps maybe there's something like that in there. And this is what he prayed. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. And I think it's pretty challenging to hear this prayer as anything other than being a self-righteous, you know, smug, you know, jerk. But I'm not so sure, I'm not so sure the audience would have felt that way about even this prayer. Thank God I'm not like other people. In fact, there are prayers like this, there are Jewish prayers like this that contain similar phrases. Thank God I'm not like so-and-so. And and in a way, there is a certain amount of, I think one cool thing about parables, you don't have a lot of emotion here. See, the same phrase, thank God I'm not like other people, can be kind of an asshole thing to say, or it could be something like admitting that you've experienced a lot of grace in your life. I, I hate this, the overuse of this word right now. And it's, it's in a way, like most words, it's been sort of weaponized and, and that makes me uncomfortable. But a word like privilege, you know, maybe he's just saying, you know, I've, I did, what, you know, how did I end up here? Um, I, it could have been worse. And then he gives a list like robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector who you see is nearby. Yeah, I mean, thank God I'm, I wasn't born in, into a war zone. Or, I mean, the more I sit with this parable, the more I, I wonder, I'm not so sure the self-righteous component here is so obvious with the Pharisee. Oh, he's, you know, I'm so much better than so and so. I, I, I wonder if this is a fairly authentic prayer. If you've, if you've never felt this, well, maybe you haven't been brought to your knees. You know, like it could be worse. Um, you know, a friend of mine. I hesitate to tell this story because I, I haven't asked him, so I'm not going to give you any details. But he was telling me about his grandfather. I, I believe it was, and he was talking about how he was. It was a manual laborer, day laborer, and, and he was so poor. I and mean, this image, I mean, almost makes me want to cry. I mean, um, that he would, the shovel that he used to dig ditches for a living was the same shovel that he used to cook with. You know, I mean, that's like, mm. so if you're listening to this podcast, thanks for that story. I'm not going to reveal any other details, but other than just that image and, um, and I think, you know, I think about my own grandparents in that sense. My, my, my grandpa um, was from Ireland and, uh, well, I should say his grandfather was Ireland and, from Ireland and, and he moved the entire family to, to Detroit um, when my, when my uh, grandpa was, I think, just a newborn. And uh, no, I, correction, I got to get the... The, the facts right. He moved the whole family to, to, to Detroit and my grandfather was born. So my grandfather was born in Detroit and um, they moved because of the potato famine in Ireland. And it was so hard and so challenging 
living in America. And then my grandfather's uh, wife got cancer and died. One of my brother's, uh, excuse me, one of my grandfather's brothers was hit by a train and killed in Detroit. And it was like there was so much suffering and grief that they went back to Ireland when, when my grandpa was three years old. So born in Detroit, back to Ireland, like the opposite way on the ship, you know. And then uh, many years later, my grandfather decided, because he had a, was able to get an American passport, that um, his young family would be better off in America. And so he moved the family when my dad was 14 by boat across, you know, the sea again. And they pulled into Ellis Island. And, and the only thing my grandpa had um, in terms of possessions, well, the only container he had for possessions was this trunk that sits in my, in my mom's living room. And I think, God, I, 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 yeah, thank God I haven't had to cross the ocean just to make ends meet, to wonder if I could make ends meet. Like, like my heritage. And there was a time when being Ireland, uh, being from Ireland in America was, um, was not exactly like a badge of honor on St. Patrick's Day. Like, oh, oh, you're Irish, you know, how much can you drink? You know, that kind of thing. Um, it was a lot worse for my people. Thank God I wasn't born in that time, you know. So you can feel that, just let yourself feel that maybe this is not, not such, such a dark prayer, you know. Um, and he says, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. So in a way, it's like, I'm trying here. Um, I'm trying to, to put my money where my mouth is. I, I identify as a religious Pharisee here, and I'm trying to do it. And thank God I'm not a part of another group. So I just think that's an interesting way of reading it. But the tax collector, the parable goes on, stood at a distance and he would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I think, well, okay, what kind of prayer is this? Well, it's a pretty honest prayer. Uh, we need mercy. And that's a, that's a, perhaps a prayer that requires you to get on your knees. Same with the other one too. I mean, um, have mercy on me, a sinner. It also, you know, the tax collector business, it would have bothered people more than the Pharisee. Why is the tax collector here praying like this? And, and in Judaism, unlike Christianity, sort of cheap Christianity, cliche Christianity, sort of the, the cliche Christianity is like, hey, you can do anything you want. You can be a murderer, but as long as you say, hey, Jesus, forgive me, all is, you know, you're good to go. You're washed in the blood. You know, I mean, that's, that's a cliche exaggeration. Um, but we, but Christianity, especially Protestant Christianity, often would deal with things like sin, which means to miss the mark, by saying, "Hey, ask God to forgive you." But in Judaism, it's not really like that. Um, it, it's much more like you have to change your behavior. That's what the word repentance means. It means to go in a different direction. And uh, and. And so the question that the audience would have been carrying is, like, okay, fine prayer, we get it, it's a pretty good one. Maybe it's better than even the Pharisee's prayer, and that, that's kind of challenging. Thanks for that challenge, Jesus. It's, it's, it's uh, more honest in a way, you could say. But that's not really that important because if he just says, hey, have mercy on me, a sinner, and then goes and uh, collects taxes, then we got a problem with this guy. And that seems, uh, we wouldn't like that. So 
here's Jesus' conclusion. I'm going to give you a very unorthodox reading here. So I'll read it to you in English. It says, I tell you that, I tell you that this man, speaking of the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For those who are exalted will, will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Okay? And so the ordinary Christian reading is tax collector got it right, Pharisee got it wrong, figures. This is what we always expect, you know. Pharisees are going to do it wrong every time, and, um, you know, and so, but I'm not so sure that that's the most helpful interpretation here. And uh, some of it comes from the Greek itself. So what I'm about to tell you comes from Amy Jill Levine. She's a, um, a Hebrew scholar. I met her once. Um, she's a scholar of the New Testament and has written all kinds of really interesting things about Jesus. And, and um, she has a book called Short Stories, which are about Jesus's parables. And she picks up on the Greek here and she says, actually, it says, I tell you the truth that this man, and then the word rather here is the word para, same word where we get parable here. It means to cast alongside. So it could just as easily read plainly in the Greek, I tell you the truth that this man, as well as or alongside of the other, went home justified before God. Now this, everyone would have a problem with. If this is the, the kind of interpretation that's closer to what Jesus had in mind, then, then nobody's off the hook. He's actually challenging people's very notions of who's in and who's out by saying both are in. <laughs> um, and both have a problem. You could say both have a problem and both are in. You know, it's like, well, who's the sinner here? Well, yes. And who's, who's justified? Who, who will God listen to? Yes. And that gets at the very opening um, framing that Luke puts here, which is, to some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told the following parable. So for people like me and you who have a group that you look down upon, and don't tell me you don't. Of course you do. You have a group you look down upon. Even if you're like all about inclusion, well, you're definitely not going to include people who aren't all about inclusion, you know? So it's like the thing collapses in on itself. And so, okay, feel into that. Yeah, I can be real confident at times, at moments, about my own righteousness. And, and, and I've created quite an identity by being not like other people. And what Jesus is saying is the fundamental reality of the divine here includes mercifully the righteous and the unrighteous. It doesn't matter is what the parable is winking at. Just go to the temple, you could say. Any kind of prayer will, will do. It's probably not about getting the words right. And or or God saying, you know, sort of like imagine a priest like waving his hands, you know, absolving people like he, God only does it to certain kinds of people and certain ways of doing it. If Jesus is really saying, I tell you the truth that this man as well as the other, then it's a problem. And and what would give us the right to interpret it this way in such an unorthodox fashion? Well, I think you have to listen to the other teachings of Jesus, which he says, well, God causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. Rain being another image and for the mercy of God. It's like, well, where is my identity? This, this, like, well, maybe God's not so stingy 
in including you in the divine economy of things, where your acts of righteousness are just held in a kind of in a in the in in the palm of mercy at the end of the day. Now, wouldn't that be amazing? And wouldn't that completely change the landscape? I mean, I don't know how to get out of this right-left polarization that is a poison. It is poison. One of the reasons why, I mean, I feel so p passionate about this is that for a long time I've wanted to be, and I've tried to express myself as I'm, I'm more on the left, I'm progressive, as opposed to those like backwards people who are on the right who are regressive. And, and I've contributed to the very dynamic that is poisonous. And so I'm, I'm taking ownership of that. But I just look at the landscape and, and uh, the, the culture and religious and spiritual landscape, and I, and I can see, no, none of this is working. Like Einstein, no consciousness can be solved. Uh, no problem can be solved by the same consciousness that created it. We need a consciousness shifting transformation. And Jesus is offering the kind of stories that can radically shift the consciousness. It is not up to me to, to decide who's in and who's out and who's righteous and who's not. I can go to the temple symbolically, metaphorically, um, can, in a contemporary way. I don't know. I'm not trying to tell people how to pray. And if I can have a posture that is something like both, maybe, thank God I'm not like other people, like, all right, I don't deserve much of my own life here and also have mercy on me. I make mistakes. It changes the landscape. I look out at the world differently if I can see that the whole world is like that. That um, there's something about the chesed, that's the Hebrew word, the mercy of God that transcends my own categories. And Jesus is, is luring us. He's cast out the line. He's luring us and he wants us to bite on this. I think hoping it will change and, and hoping we will change, be transformed. And, and the very next thing he tells people is right after this is, I, I, um, I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. It's like you have to return to childhood. You have to be that simple again instead of that sophisticated in your own uh, self-righteousness. This is what I think Thomas Merton meant by the false self. It's, I, I, uh, I'm not ready yet, but I will one day make a, a podcast about the false self, what Merton meant by the false self as best as I can tell, and the true self. And, um, but maybe I'll read a bit from Merton here and see what you resonate with. And I'm, I'm going to kind of leave it at that. I don't know if I'll give a lot of interpretations, but maybe a few. Every one of us is shadowed by an illusory person, a false self. Every one of us has a false self. This is the man or woman that I want myself to be, but who cannot exist. Because God does not know anything about him, and to be unknown by God is altogether too much privacy. So the man I want myself to be may be like, you can see it perhaps in both the tax collector and the Pharisee. Well, thank God I'm not like a people. I'm not a robber or evildoer. I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty righteous person. I mean, how much of that is the false self? How much of that is wrapping yourself in that kind of identity? Or another question is how much of the tax collector's identity is wrapped up in his, uh, in his woundedness? You know, well, woe is me. I'm not worthy. You know, we live in a very wound-identified culture right now which is a way of saying wrapped up in a false self. 
My false and private self, the private self, the one that stands at a distance, which both of these figures are doing, my false and private self is the one who wants to exist outside the reach of God's will and God's love, outside of the reality and outside of life. And such a self cannot help but be an illusion. We are not very good at recognizing illusions, least of all the ones we cherish about ourselves. <laughs> I, I mean, this is like so convicting to me because, yeah, there are a lot of things I cherish about myself. I am fill in the blank. And yeah, I'm, I'm afraid much of that at times is an illusion. The ones we are born with which feed our roots of sin. For most of the people in the world, there's no greater subjective reality than this false self of theirs, which cannot exist. A life devoted to the cult of this shadow is what is called a life of sin. Devoted to the cult of this shadow of the false self, a cult of identifying with this false and a, and a, and a, this false illusion. All sin starts from the assumption that my false self, the self that exists only in my egocentric desires, is the fundamental reality of life to which everything else in the universe is ordered. In other words, I'm the center of the universe. I mean, it's very subtle. It's not like we're that conscious of it. Thus, I use up my life in the desire for pleasures and the thirst for experiences. That's me, thirst for experiences, for power and honor and knowledge and love to clothe this false self and construct its nothingness into something objectively real. And I wind experiences around myself and cover myself with pleasures and glory like bandages in order to make myself perceptible to myself. This is Facebook. This is Instagram. I'm trying to make myself perceptible to myself. There I am as I wrap myself with pleasures and experiences and glories and images as if I were an invisible body that could only become visible when something visible covered its surface. This is profound writing here. And I just want to end with this final line. The secret of my identity is hidden in the love and mercy of God. You know, when it comes to ultimate questions of identity, like, what is the core of my identity? Merton is winking here and saying, it's a secret. And it's hidden in the divine and the mystery and the cosmos and love. That's in the parable here. It's like, well, the true identity is not the Pharisee or the tax collector, but their true identity is hidden in the mercy of God, in the mercy of love, in, in the mercy of existence itself, you could say, in reality with a capital R. You know, Paul, Paul the, the mystic Paul, and I really think that's what he was, says, my life is hidden with Christ, what does he say? Hidden with Christ in God before the foundations of the world. I can't even think of a more profound, mystical, strange, and numinous line than that. So who am I? God, I mean, it's like my existence is a kind of mystery. It's enveloped in the cloud of the cosmos, you could say, which is ultimately a cloud of love, and that's what Jesus is saying. That's the, that's the, the, the divine secret. The divine secret is, is that God holds all things in love in this way. So I thought I'd return again to, to the parables here and to, you know, I could have put this as a, as a, this podcast as another expression of ancient compost, which is my way of referring to ancient material and biblical material. And 
like what's still potent here? What's what nutrients are still present? So I hope you heard a hint, a guess, a clue, um, a wink, a nod, an arrow, and look forward to uh, to next time. Peace.